Hello everyone, welcome back to the True Crime Friday podcast. With this episode, we are going back to our roots with the whole serial killer shit. So there will be a lot of mentions of murder, violence that some people may find upsetting and or disturbing. And if that is the case, this may not be the episode for you. This will also have some mentions of executions because this is set in the UK and before the abolishment of executions. So be prepared for that. But yeah, on with the episode. Hello there. Hello. Let's get it over with. Come on. Let's go. Oh, fucking hell. All right. Jeez. Well, we know what you're going to say straight away. Come on. I, I don't tell know. us. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you're not going to mention anything about what happened, which you spoke about last time. Oh, what? That I was. That. Um, uh... <laughs> I managed to get to the very, very front for Bring Me the Horizon on Saturday. <laughs> like the... Yeah, practically kissing the man. Uh, I um, I was barrier. I got to the barrier. Yeah, and I was on the screen when uh they were doing drown. So uh... did you have to fight off many people to get to the front? No, no, I didn't actually. We got there at like seven, so about fifty minutes before Bad Omens came on. Um, stood with my mates for a bit when Bring Me were about to come on, and then they came on, and I was like, I'm just gonna go into the pits because I really wanted to go into the mosh pit. So I ran towards there, went in the pit for a bit, kind of just chilled where I was, and then because of how the crowd was and how big the pit ended up being, I just ended up getting pushed forward. And then accidentally found myself in that spot. And I just I was like, that pit opened. I got pushed forward. Another pit opened. And then I got pushed forward again. And then I ended up just there. And I was like, I remember, I remember just standing there and just going, how the fuck have I done this? <laughs> Damn. How the fuck did I manage this? This is the closest I've got to the front in a while. Um, like... It was weird, and yeah, like he the when when drowned when drowned gets played, he this they bring out a set of stairs because he comes down with a camera, and he goes across the entire barrier, and he did that, and he was like, as if anyone has seen my Instagram or my TikToks, you'll see he was literally directly in front of me with his camera, at Ollie Sykes, and I was, and I was just like what the fuck is going on like all my footage i'm mo- i'm not even really zoomed in that's just kind of how it was from where i was stood but i ended up on the screen uh with him found my friend later on like, after the gig and he i was like i showed him how close i got and he went that was you on the screen i was like yep you think a couple of people were like oh my god that's Lauren from the true crime friday podcast no way i mean i highly doubt that bit but my friend was like that was you on the screen i was like yep and i showed them the footage and everything they're like how the fuck did you get there and i was like i don't even know if i'm being honest very lucky do it while you can because when you get older you won't be at the front that very often will you know exactly and then obviously metal hammer photographers took a picture of it and i was on the cover of uh, their article for that because like, you can see me in the crowd my boyfriend sent me that picture of uh, 
the article and he was like there's you and i was like oh yeah that is very clearly me as well that is not even like oh it might be me no that is very clearly me (laughs) and i was like oh shit i was exhausted afterwards though i was absolutely dead to everything like it was one of those where as soon as i got shoved forward even if i wanted to get out of that bit and go into a quieter section it was very difficult to even go backwards so you just kind of had to deal with it until the very end and i was like right okay but the uh noah sebastian came out with ollie for antivist and that was insane they played diamonds aren't forever that was also insane uh it was a very good set it was an amazing show uh absolutely incredible if you've not seen broom in the horizon live i highly recommend it but i had a very good weekend with that but i literally afterwards because right this is a complaint that i've got to say about the arena because i'm not gonna lie i got really annoyed with this so when i i've got to take antidepressants called metazapine it is meant to knock you out it is literally made for people who have insomnia or night terrors right that's what it's there for. It helps with anxiety as well, but it's really good if you've got PTSD. So I take that. You have to take it at night. So I take it at 10 o'clock every evening. However, when I'm going on nights out, I figured out a loophole where if you take it with caffeine, like a Red Bull or something, or Monster, whatever, any form of energy drink or coffee, it will you you can still stay awake it won't knock you out so i normally take it with an energy drink if i'm going on a night out and it keeps me awake because we were going to go out afterwards because it was my friend's birthday uh went to the bar in the arena uh also one thing that's annoying uh with this situation is the downs the standing section in manchester arena they used to have two separate exits where the toilets are and they used to be like loads of bars they've gotten rid of that now it's just toilets there's no extra bars there's like a tiny little pop-up tent in the standing area which is really fucking annoying for the amount of people that are there went to the bar i was like yeah can i have a beer moretti because they only had beer moretti in terms of like beers i don't really do cider because it makes my stomach go funny uh but i asked for a beer moretti and i was like oh what kind of energy drinks do you have and they went oh we don't do energy drinks i was like that's weird that's that's new because you definitely like they used to definitely do energy drinks because you used to be able to buy jaeger bombs from the bar and for anyone who doesn't know jaeger bomb is just jaegermeister with red bull basically um so i was like oh do you have can i have like who f- else to settle for the best next best thing i was like can you just have full fat full sugar coke they gave me coke zero because they don't do full sugar anymore they stopped doing full sugar drinks and only do sugar free drinks now and if you're a diabetic you're fucked (laughs) and i was like there's sugar free red bulls but they didn't have anything sugar free they didn't have any caffeine they literally had no sorry didn't have anything full sugar they just had and no caffeine they just had flat coke zero or pepsi max and that was it they had no form of sugar at all and I was like, I'm going to pass out after this gig. I can see it now because I took my medication. And when we got to the bar after, like a bar afterwards, which is around the corner, I, I got a Red Bull there, but my meds already taken a hit. I was already like, All right, I'm going to fall asleep. So big complaints, Manchester Arena, for not selling full sugared drinks when there's people who are possibly diabetic walking around, you fucking idiots. You've been warned. You've got a little goth angry at you. It was just a night, because we did say this. We were like, oh, right, no, like sugar-free drinks, okay. But 
if a diabetic's got a low blood sugar count, they need a sugary drink. A sugar, like a sugar-free drink or Coke Zero, Pepsi Max, will make them really ill. Don't like you need people. Some people need full sugar. It's not a diet thing. People just need full sugar, like provide full sugar, especially when like you're at a gig like this. You're using a lot of energy, and you're gonna need that. You're gonna need that caffeine. You're gonna need that extra bit of energy. And the fact that they just stop doing that is really fucking weird. And another one, because we've done an episode on Manchester Arena bombing, and I'll I said this on the night, and I'll say it fucking again. They do not check bags at the arena. Or they don't Not check. at all. They have the areas where they check the bags. I walked in, I had a bag. Like, it was a bum bag because that's the smartest thing and that's when you're going in the standing bit. But I had friends who had backpacks, like mini backpacks with them. We just walked straight in. They just put us under the metal detectors, walked straight in, no pat-downs, no bag searches, literally nothing. We were in within two seconds. I know for some people that may be a really ideal situation being in within two seconds, but I'm looking at this these security guards going, we're going to forget what happened back in 2017 or something? We're, gonna, we're just forgetting this? Weird. All right. But they didn't search any bags, no pat-downs, nothing. Yeah, that... I mean, what's that the point did, of having the metal detector? But if you're not even going to search the bag, uh, that yeah, that just did not sit well with me in the slightest. And someone said to me that apparently they're bringing in new AI technology into the arena where they don't have to search your bags. It'll just like when you go through a detector, it'll scan your bag and it'll you'll like be able to see something. We didn't see any screens that they were looking at there. They had no computer screens to show that they were looking at stuff that was in the bags when you went through these detectors. So they didn't have them clearly on the night. Also, like basically similar to what you have in um airport security, that's what they're trying to say to you. But I'm also like I have at times forgotten that I have a metal flask in my bag. Or a flask like that has alcohol that should have that would have alcohol in it in my bag i've forgotten about it when i've gone through an airport shit happens but it's gone through that freaking detector before and they've not picked up on it so i don't have full trust in those detectors i'm just saying uh but yeah i thought that was very weird that was my that was my uh my weekend that was my saturday but yeah great gig just manchester arena sort your shit out because you were Compared to any other venue in Manchester, you're pretty shit. <laughs> like, Academy checks your bags. Manchester Academy checks your bags. The Ritz, they check your bags. They actually do it quite thoroughly as well. And uh, they also provide full sugar drinks and energy drinks at the bars. Sort your shit out, Manchester Arena. Because that was fucking dreadful. Do you know what, is fuck- do you know what also is dreadful? This case. <laughs> Well, that's not a surprise. That's not. I mean, I don't know what it is, but I still, it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise, no. Uh, this case that we've got today, we've got. We've not, you know what? I realised something. I don't think we've done like a full blown serial killer case in a while. Oh, like I said last time. Well, I say. Last time I'm pretty sure I said normal person. But you know what I mean? Someone who isn't famous, but their famous fame comes from them being a serial killer. Yeah, we've not had someone who is a serial killer in a good few episodes we've done a lot of mass we've done a lot of mass mass murders and single murders lately well who who was the last one we would have done then uh, 
let me have a gander. Yeah, because it has been a while. I mean, we all lump them under serial killers, but someone who fits the um, non-theme, well, I say non-theme, but not, you know, a particular type of character or setting, if we will. Uh, we're going fight quite a f Richard Grissom, I think, was the last one. That's in November. Fucking hell. Yes. Oh, God. Jesus, it's been a while since we've had an actual serial killer that we covered. Anyway, we're going to be covering a serial killer today. If you couldn't tell where I was going with that. Uh, it's going to be one from the UK. We're going into our neck of the woods. Uh... Closer to my neck of the woods more than you. But, yeah, this is a serial killer from Yorkshire. So, get your accents out, I guess. <laughs> uh, so, uh, we're going to be talking about John Christie. Ah, John. Good old John. No, no idea. I mean, it wouldn't. It would shock me if you knew who he was because I didn't until I did my research. It's a bit of an old case, so well, uh, black and white image, and they're all in black and white apart from that. Is that? Yeah, like he was born in eighteen ninety nine. So we are talking. I think that's a wax figure of him. What? <laughs> well, there's only one. F yeah, <laughs> that that's definitely a wax figure of him. I don't know where that is, but yeah, the only photo I could see of him. Oh, that's in a... There's another one. Oh, he's... A... Oh, yeah, Madame Two Swords. He's in Madame Two Swords. I didn't know that. Neither did I, and I'm kind of weirded out. Why well, I didn't know him, but he's in Madame Two Swords, so that's famous enough. You know, not every... Not every gadget gets in uh, yeah, Madame Two Swords. I really hope there's not one of Peter Sutcliffe, you know. But maybe I mean, at what point now? I mean, I don't think I've been... Maybe I wasn't Madame Tussauds, but if they're having serial killers in there, I've never, I, I don't know what lengths they're going to I've, to determine what's safe to put in and not. I've never been in a Madame Tussauds. Never. But if you went in a waxwork and you're like, oh shit, there's a waxwork of a serial I, killer. I mean, I find it weird when people go into Madame Tussauds and, tell, and take selfies with the waxworks. It's just like, but, but, but for why? But, like, Waxworks are famous people who've done something, you know, yeah. in life. But yeah. having a serial killer seems a bit weird. Yeah, you know when you, I have, don't know. You know when you have people do this whole... People very rightfully complain about um, serial killers being glorified. Like, yeah, I, when they're making wax figures out of them, you are glorifying them a bit because you are making yeah. them famous. Like, stop the weird <laughs> shit. It's not the people who have the podcast, you know? I know a lot of people think that it's a lot of the folk who have podcasts on serial killers, hi, uh, that glorify them. We kind of don't. It's the fucking weirdos that make wax figures out of them. We don't want that shit. We find it fucking That's weird. You're making, music, 100%. you're making museums out of these bastards. Why? 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 Imagine being the person who makes the wax figures and they're just like, oh, yeah, here's this guy, John Christie. Who was he? Oh, a serial killer. Yeah, you got to make him. Yeah. And it is technically glorifying because you don't yeah. just make a waxwork figure of anyone. And you've clearly... It's not like they don't know who it is and just gone, oh, this guy was famous. Oh, yeah, there we go. And didn't do a background check. I mean, if you Google his name, it comes up with serial killers. So there's no way they could go, well, we didn't really know he was a bad person. But I'm interested. We haven't even done black and white case, if you will, 
for ages either. So if anyone is looking for a serial killer case and miss, misses them, or misses the black and white cases, I say like very old ones, then you've picked a good one for them. But no, I'm, I'm interested in this because I have no idea, never seen this guy before, never even heard anything, but seeing that he was a um, an alleged thingy ma bobber uh, that, that says enough already. Thingy ma bobber <laughs> Well, necrophiliac, there we go. I, would, I, I knew you were going to say it, but it says he's alleged necrophiliac, so that says all I need to know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, let me talk about John Christie. He was born on the 8th of April, 1899, in Northam, near Halifax, in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Pretty sure Halifax is a bit of a shithole. So fair, about right. Especially around this time. Definitely was. He was the sixth in a family of seven children. He had a troubled relationship with his father. He was a carpet designer called Ernest John Christie. An, an austere and uncommunicative man who displayed little emotion towards his children and would punish them for, for trivial offences. This is the 1800s. This is not a shock to me at all. That they man from the early 20th century doesn't show emotion yeah i'm not surprised none of them did not like they women still could women vote at this point no women couldn't vote at this point so what do you expect uh john was also coddled and bullied by his mother and older sisters on the 24th of March 1911, Christie's grandfather, David Halliday, died at the age of 75 in Christie's house after a long illness. Christie later said that seeing his grandfather's body laid out on a trestle table giving him, gave him a feeling of power and well-being. A man he had once feared was now only a corpse. I mean, I get the idea of, like, you feel a bit of power because this cunt that you were scared of is now finally dead. You're kind of like, oh, I feel free. But I don't understand the whole, like, like, this shouldn't have made you go, ooh, and the big bollocks. At the age of 11, Christie won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School. I've, I looked up this secondary school. It looks like a very posh place, so he probably did need a scholarship to get into there, because I can imagine that costing a lot of fucking money. His favourite subject was maths, wronging. Uh, particularly algebra, even more of a wronging. He, I never understood people who said that their favourite subject was maths and they really liked algebra. I don't get it. I, hate, I hated maths, but each to their own. He was also good at history and woodwork. It was later found that Christie had an IQ of 128. And I've said this before in previous episodes, but serial killers who have a high IQ scare me more than most. Is a hundred, I mean, 128 IQ, is that still considered? Yes. Yes, it's because like, I, I I don't know what's I'm pretty, what, what's I'm pretty sure it's considered still relatively smart. But what but, even is a normal IQ? Because back then that's probably smart. Oh yeah, back then that is definitely smart. Um, so a hundred score above one thirty are labelled as above average or very superior, while scores under seventy would be considered below. Most people have an average IQ between eighty five and one hundred and fifteen. You know, I'd love to know actually what my IQ is. I would, but I wouldn't because I feel like I'm going to be really let down. Um, no, but the thing is, if you were very smart, see if our IQs were very high, I think we'd be let down by the fact they're high, but we're not dude. as smart as that IQ level. Yeah, yeah. Like, so, oh, I'm throwing you under the bus, but... I 
I've, for me, it'd probably if I got a high IQ score, I'd be like, I am really wasting this intelligence, but oh well. Yeah, but hey, we've said before, signs of serial killers having high IQs they, has been a thing as well. Yeah, well, not all of them have IQ. Some of them are really fucking stupid. Well, but uh, like, it's fun. It's the ones who have was, high IQs always freak me out the most. The thing is, I was just gonna say this because I saw. Well, I don't know who it was but there was an article here in the uh, one of our papers where it said that there was a 16 year old near here that tied a cow tied his pet cow by its legs and tortured it and it did eventually pass away and i remember saying that to my mum and the first thing my mum said was well that's the signs of someone who turns out to be a serial killer yep i mean and i was and i was like well damn yeah mum knows that well, she's obviously read or seen that, it that a lot of serial killers I feel like torture that, pets. I also feel like that's just a basic known, like, universal fact that people just know, oh, you torture animals, you're most likely going to be a serial killer. I feel like it's just like, even if you don't know anything about serial killers, you know that. But the thing is, you can't really say, oh, someone's got a high IQ, they're definitely going to be a serial killer. Yeah, that is true, you can't. You'd probably think the opposite. Uh, so he attended Boothtown Council School in Northworm. He sang in the church choir and was a Boy Scout. After leaving school on the 22nd of April 1913, he got a job as an assistant prote- uh, projectionist. Uh, during his later life, Christie's childhood peers described him as a queer lad who kept himself to himself and was not very popular. And bear in mind, this is like 1913 and onwards. Being called a queer lad is not going to be a good thing because it's also illegal at this point. His problem with impotence began when he was a child. His first attempts at sex were failures and he was branded Reggie No Dick and Can't Do It Christy by his peers, which is actually kind of funny. Yeah, that's kind of funny. A little bit funny. That just shows that, like, back then, people still had some fire insults. Yeah, the the insults have stayed roughly the same (laughs) about 100 years later. Yeah, I, I, you still get, you'd still get someone called that, like no dick. Well, oh, I mean, yeah. obviously everyone has a dick, Reggie but no like dick. being called that, you know, I don't know if back then he would have laughed it off, and it's like a lad's thing, Probably or if he took not. it very deadly serious. He's a, he was a serial killer, so I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna guess that he probably took it a bit more seriously. Because <laughs> um, one thing we've realised with the serial killers that got picked on in this kind of way, they can't take a joke. Really, like they just cannot take a fucking joke. That's what I've realised. Is like you, they'll get t- taken the piss out of because they can't get laid, and they will not laugh it off. They can't take a fucking joke. So that's yeah. He probably didn't laugh it off. His sexual difficulties were lifelong. Apparently, most of the time he could only perform with sex workers. In September 1916, during the First World War, Christie enlisted in the British Army. He was called upon on the 12th of April 1917 to join the 52nd Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire Regiment to serve as an, an in, infantryman. Infantryman? In April 1918, the regiment was, dis- was dispatched to France, where Christie was seconded to the Duke of Wellington's regiment as a, sing- as a signalman. During the following June, Christie was injured with mustard, in a mustard gas attack and spent a month in military hospital. He later claimed this attack had rendered him blind and mute for three and a half years and permanently impacted his ability to speak loudly. Aww. Oh my god. Imagine, imagine... Oh god, it's not even funny, but can you imagine him trying to, like, intimidate you? 
Just nah, but like mustard gas is fucking lethal. Oh yeah, yeah. Like he. Like I remember on a France and Belgium trip. When we went on the France and Belgium trip, there was some place we went to, and they had like a. There was an area in the museum we were in where you could sniff an area, and you would be able to sniff the types of gases that were there, like the chlorine one. And they had like a. I don't know what they'd use because if they'd actually made real life mustard gas, then that would have been illegal. Or could have had a museum, but they had something that was close to it, and I remember smelling it being like, oof. Just the smell of that shit was like fucking nuts. And I can't remember what it was. I saw it was like a TikTok. Oh, there's a couple TikToks where there it's like a bunch of people who do those cleaning videos that show you them putting a bunch of chemicals in the toilet. Oh god, I hate and those one, ones. And one of them became popular because it was like Stop, stop. You're making mustard gas. They were literally making mustard gas in the toilet. And a bunch of people, like, memed it because the person was showing off, I don't know, them cleaning the toilet. But if you were careful on what chemicals they were putting in, they were literally making mustard gas in their toilet. So people are still stupid enough to do that. But I, if this man has survived a mustard gas attack, then considering himself very lucky, he should have died from that. Oh, which yeah. I wish... Well, I'll figure out how bad he is of a person, but you will wish he probably should have yeah, wished he died. Yeah, you'll wish that he would have died in the gas attack, I'm not going to lie. Uh, Ludovic Kennedy wrote that no record of Christie's blindness had been traced and that while he might have lost his voice when he was admitted to hospital, he would not have been discharged as fit for duty had he remained a mute. His inability to talk loudly, Kennedy argued, was a psychological reaction to the gassing rather than taste, rather than a lasting toxic effect of the gas. So basically he's saying that he might have been putting it on a bit. The, re the reaction and Christie's exaggeration of the events of the effects of the attack stemmed from an underlying historic personality disorder that caused him to exaggerate uh, illnesses as a ploy to get attention and sympathy. And we have talked about this kind of thing before. Uh, I think it was Munchausen's by proxy, like where the Beth Bethany Allett, the uh, angel of death, she, when we covered her, she did that. She would fake, she would exa over exaggerate an illness or fake an illness just to get sympathy and attention. Christie was was uh, let go from the army on the twenty second of October, nineteen nineteen. Now, obviously, he struggled getting laid but he did get married to a lady named ethel simpson from bradford at halifax's town register office on the 10th of may 1920 his impotence remained and he continued to visit sex workers fuck knows why early in the marriage ethel suffered a miscarriage and after four years of marriage the couple separated ethel worked at a at the Garside Engineering Company on Ironbridge Road in Bradford and later worked at the English Electrical Company on Thornton Road, also in Bradford, until 1928. That year, Ethel and her siblings moved to Sheffield in, and in 1923, Chrissy moved to London where he spent the next decade in and out of prison while Ethel remained in Yorkshire with her relatives. He was released from prison in January 1934 when the couple reunited and moved into 10 at Rillington Place. What's such a grandma name, though? Ethel. I know, but it's kind of... I do like the name Ethel. It's kind of cute. No, I don't think anyone would call their child that now. No, This no. is the thing when we cover the cases so far back. Like, the names... I mean, this guy has a generic name, but, like, the female names and everything are just so different compared to a case that we would cover right now where some of the names are maybe beyond what people back then thought they'd call be calling children but Matt, i mean ethel of all things i i can see why it's cute but 
if, if anyone knows an actual Ethel going about now that isn't in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, I'd be damned. Should we bring that name back? I don't know. It's Maybe. Like, I, think I it's, don't know. I think it sounds like a very cute little innocent name. Like, a, like Ethel just sounds like she's a really innocent What's well, an English person. name for sure. Yeah. 100%. I don't think you'd get that in America. I don't think anyone's calling her child Ethel. Like, you should sound, it sounds really innocent and cute. So during the first decade of his marriage to Ethel, Christie was convicted of several criminal offences. Shock. He began working as a postman on the 10th of January 1921 in Halifax, and his first conviction was for stealing postal orders of the 20th of February and the 26th of March, for which he received three months' imprisonment for on the 12th of April 1921. He served his sentence at HM Prison, HM Prison Manchester, which is also known as Strangeways, and was released on the 27th of June. Christie was then convicted on the tw- on the 15th of January 1923 for obtaining money on false pretenses and of a violent conduct, for which he respectively was bound over and placed on probation for 12 months. He committed two further crimes of larceny during 1924 and received consecutive sentences of three and of three and six months imprisonment on the 22nd of September 1924 in HM Prison, Wandsworth. On the 13th of May 1929, after working for over two years as a lorry driver, Christie was convicted of assaulting Maud Cole, with whom he was living with at 6 Almerick Road in Battersea, and was sentenced to six months hard labour. He had hit Cole over the head of a cricket bat, which the magistrate described as a murderous attack, for which he was again sent to HM Prison Wandsworth for. Finally, he was convicted of auto theft and was re-imprisoned in HM Prison Wandsworth for three months on the 1st of November 1933. Chrissy and Ethel were reconciled on the, in 1934 after he, was, after he was released from prison, but he continued to visit sex workers. He ended his recourse to petty crime. In 1937, the Christies moved into a top-floor flat of 10 Rillington Place in Notting Hill, then a rather run-down area in a rather run-down area of London. They later moved into the ground-floor flat in December 1938. The the house was a three-storey brick and terrace built in the the 1870s during a period of intensive speculative building in the area, resulting in in much jerry-built property which declined into poorly maintained and unimproved multi-occupancy rentals. Basically, the flats were shit. Number 10 was of a common design. The ground floor and first floors each contained a bedroom and a living room with a kitchen in in the adjacent extension, but the second floor flat had two rooms only. The kitchen slash living room and a bedroom. Living conditions were squalid and the building's occupants shared an outside toilet. None of the flats had a bathroom, so you had to share an outhouse in this shitty little apartment or flat complex. The street was close in an above-ground section of the London Underground's Metropolitan Line and the train noise would have been a death would have been deafening for the occupants in the apartments. The reason why we're going to go on about the apartments because is that they, they unfortunately hold a big significance in this case. Of course they do. Which they always do. After three years of working as a foreman in the Commodore Cinema in King Street, Hammersmith at the beginning of the Second World War, Christie applied to join the War Reserve Police and was accepted. The authorities failed to check for the extensive for the extent for the extensive criminal record. So they didn't check his criminal record in the slightest before he joined the police, which I swear is a requir- is a requirement. 
He was assigned to the Harrow Road Police Station where he met a woman called Gladys Jones with whom he began an affair with. The relationship lasted until mid-1943 when the woman's husband, a serving soldier, returned from the war and after learning of the affair, he went to the house where his wife was living, discovered Christie there and assaulted him. Christie committed his murders over a 10-year period between 1943 and 1953, which we are going to go into now. So brace yourselves, people. The first person Christie admitted to killing was Ruth Forrest, a 21-year-old Aust- uh, Austrian mutants worker who supplemented her income by occasionally being a sex worker. Christie claimed to have met Ruth while she was soliciting clients in a snack bar in Ladbroke Grove. According to his own statements, on the 24th of August 1943, he invited Ruth to his home to exchange in sex. Afterwards, Christie impulsively strangled her on his bed with a length rope. He initially stowed Ruth's body beneath the floorboards of his living room, then buried her in the back garden the following evening. I'm not going to lie... He he does he has a extensive criminal background, but they were like robbery and bit of fraud here and there. I feel like he's gone from like a two to a ten very quick. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's quite two different extremes. Because robbing, yeah, it could just be one small thing, then full on murdering someone. Yeah, and also like it's one of those as well where he's been soliciting sex from sex workers for years at this point, at least two decades, and after this one, he decides to kill her. But the others that he's had for the past twenty years, he hasn't. It's just one of those cases where it's just like it almost feel like it was just at random. Someone's randomly just died. He didn't plan on that being the person. But it just so happened, out of all the sex workers he pumped, he just went, yep, I'm going to kill you. What? what? I, I I don't understand. Soon after this murder, at the, at the end of 1943, Christie resigned as a, spe- as a special constable. His service index card is now on display at the Metropolitan Mu- Police Museum, whilst evidence of his murders now forms part of the crime museum collections. The thing is, he was a policeman, yeah. and he was a postie, and then he also worked in a cinema, didn't he? Yeah. Imagine that, though. People just finding out when this guy gets convicted. Like, holy shit, that was my postie. Holy shit, that was my local police officer. Holy shit, that was the guy that worked in the cinema. I mean... I mean, he's, he's done jobs all like, in the public that when he get convicted, at least someone must have gone, fucking hell, it's the postie. Finding, you out, know? finding out a police officer's done something dodgy is not a shock. Oh, that's <laughs> never good. I, I, would that, do you think they, would have, they definitely would have had that in the... Paper would they? Would they mention that in the paper that he was an ex-police oh, officer? Oh my god, yes. <laughs> because as soon as they mention that, that's when the heads start turning. Like, how come someone who was a police officer, without as a police officer, has turned out to be a serial killer? And the thing is, they'll find out about all his other crimes and start listing that off as well, and being like, the police done fucked up here. <laughs> like they will, they will broadcast that shit. So the following year, he found a new job as a clerk at Action Radio Factory. There, he met his second victim, colleague Muriel Amelia. Uh, sorry, Muriel Amida, Amelia Eddy. On the seventh and on the seventh of October, nineteen forty-four, he invited Muriel back to his flat with the promise that he had concocted a special mixture that could cure her bronchitis. 
Muriel was to inhale the mixture from a jar with a tube inserted in the top. The mixture was in fact in fact was Fair's balsam, which Christy used to disguise the smell of domestic gas. So basically he gassed her to death. I don't understand why she went, oh, yeah, sure, you, you have a cure for my bronchitis? Yeah, I'll come over. What? If someone said to me, oh, yeah, I have a cure for this thing, you just gotta come over and drink it. Oh, okay. Fuck no, I'm not coming over there. Well, How much trust she had to trust a man to say, yeah, I've cocked up someone that'll cure your bronchitis, and just trusted that man. Well, it wasn't even, like, something that she was drinking, because she sat down and she was breathing the mixture from the tube... Uh, with her back turned and he inserted a second tube into the jar connected to a gas tap and she continued breathing. She inhaled the domestic gas, which soon put her unconscious. Uh, domestic gas during the 1940s was coal gas, uh, which had a carbon monoxide content of 15%. He then raped and strangled her before burying her outside alongside Ruth, his first victim. So he basically almost gassed her to death, thought, nah, I don't want to gas her to death. Puts her unconscious, rapes her, and then strangles her. I would have laughed if he'd actually fucking gassed himself to death during that. Oh, like um, a poisoner trying their own poison by accident. Yeah, or like, because it's gas, it actually leaks out and he inhales oh, it. Oh, that'd be so Because he didn't wear a mask. That, that would have been like the ultimate, like, fuck up. That would be so funny. During Easter of 1948, Timothy Evans and his wife, Burial, moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place, where Burial gave birth that October to their daughter, Geraldine. In late 1949, uh, Timothy Evans informed police that his wife was dead. A police search of the building failed to find her body, but a later search revealed the bodies of, of Burial, Geraldine, and a 16-week a male fetus in an outdoor wash house. Burial's body had been wrapped twice in a blanket and in a tablecloth. The post-mortem revealed that both mother and daughter had been strangled and that Burial had been physically assaulted before her death, shown by facial bruising. Timothy Evans at first claimed that Christie had killed his wife in a botched abortion operation, but police questioning eventually pro- uh, produced a confession out of him. The alleged confession may have been fabricated by the police, as the statement appears contrived and artificial. After being charged, Timothy Evans withdrew his confession and once again accused Christie, this time of both murders. On the 11th of January 1950, Evans was put on trial for the murder of his daughter, the prosecution having decided not to pursue a second charge for, of murdering his wife. Christie was a principal witness for the Crown. He denied Timothy Evans's accusations and gave detailed evidence about the quarrels between him and his wife. The jury found Timothy Evans guilty despite the revelation of Christie's criminal record of theft and violence. Timothy was originally due to be hanged on the 31st of January, but appealed. After his appeal on the 20th of February had failed, Timothy Evans was hanged at HM Prison, uh, Pentonville, on the 9th of March, 1950. If you can't tell where this is going, Timothy Evans didn't do it. So this man was wrongly convicted by the justice system and hanged. So one thing that's really... the police, Obviously, he's accusing Christie of doing the murders which is correct but 
The police have looked at both of their backgrounds. Timothy Evans had no criminal convictions against him. He's not broken a single law. Didn't has not gone in any trouble with the police in the slightest. Uh, whereas John Christie has an extensive violent background, and the police just went nah. And this becomes insanely controversial. I mean, granted, we have covered people who have done nothing bad and then but more than enough times someone who has a violent past does something violent than clean cut past turns violent all of a sudden so even then the police wouldn't have thought like that and they, they you know wouldn't have been thinking with that way and should have just thought well this man's got a history of violence mm -hmm. surely it's him yep at the time of, of Timothy Evans' trial, Christie had found a job at the post office savings bank on the 21st of May 1946 as a grade 2 clerk and worked at Kew. He was sacked when his past criminal record came to light and he left the job on the 4th of April 1950. Police made several mistakes in their handling of the Evans case, especially in overlooking the remains of Christie's previous murder victims in the garden at Temerlington Place, one femur was later found propping up a fence. The garden of the property was very small, about 16 by 14 feet, and the, and the fence was parallel to the wash house where the bodies of Beryl and Geraldine were later found. Several searches were made at the house after, after Timothy Evans confessed to placing his wife's remains in the drains, but the three policemen conducting the search did not go into the wash house. The garden was apparently examined but not excavated at this point. Christie later admitted that his dog had unearthed, had unearthed Eddie's skull in the garden shortly after these police searches. He threw the skull into an abandoned bombed-out house in nearby St. Mark's Road. There was clearly no systema uh, systematic search made of the crime scene in which this or other human remains would have been found and pointed to Christie as the murderer. Like, bear in mind, they found two bodies in this back garden, but there's multiple other bodies that are also in the back garden, and they've not bothered to go look, see if there's anything else. Several, which wouldn't happen now, which definitely wouldn't happen now. If police found two bodies in someone's back garden, they're going to take the entire place apart. Which we've seen happen. So... Uh, several police searches of the property showed a complete lack of expertise in handling forensic evidence and were quite superficial at best. Had the searches been conducted effectively, the investigation would have exposed Christie as a murderer and the lives of Evans and four women would have been saved. The evidence of builders working at Rillington Place was ignored and their interviews with Evans suggest that the police con concocted a false confession. It should have been clear from the first statement made by Timothy Evans on the 30th of November 1949 that he was ignorant of the resting place of the body of his wife or how she had been killed. He claimed that his wife's body was in either a manhole or a drain at the front of the house, but a police search failed to find remains there. That should have prompted a thorough search of the residence, wash house and garden, but no further action was taken until later when the two bodies were found in the wash house. Evans was also unaware that his first interview, his first interview, that his daughter had been killed. So he had no idea that his daughter had been killed. Yet he was tried and convicted for her murder. So bad police work. Shock. 
The police interrogation in London was mishandled from the start when they showed him the clothes of his wife and baby and revealed that they had been found in the wash house. Such information should have been kept from him as as so to force him to tell the police where the bodies had been concealed. The several apparent confessions contain questionable words and phrases in higher in high register language such as terrific argu- uh, terrific argument which seemed out of place for a distressed uneducated working class young man such as Timothy Evans and bear no relation to what he probably said. So it's a load of bullshit. Police accepted all of Christie's statements as true without major scrutiny and he was the crucial witness of the trial of the Evans case. As Kennedy wrote, the police accepted Christie, a former war reserve policeman, as one of their own, largely taking what he said on face value without any further investigation. Dickheads. Bearing in mind Christie had criminal convictions for theft and malicious wounding. And obviously, like I said, Timothy Evans had nothing. It is significant that Christie had claimed to be an abortionist prior to his meeting with the Evanses, having said so to a colleague in 1947. He also repeated this claim after Timothy Evans's trial to women as he spoke to that he spoke to in cafes, who he possibly regarded as potential victims. So during the trial that Timothy Evans was going to go, you know, get hanged for, he literally was in cafes across the street going up to women being like, "I can perform abortions." Which it's really sad because this was common at the time where that people were doing like back alley abortions because it wasn't legal to do it professionally and this was very, very common. It just gave really bad access to these kinds of serial killers. Yeah, that's why I've I've made the joke or um I remember we did this in um it was S three when we uh, um, in my class when we did music technology, um was that a radio show we had to do? And then he had to have adverts within that. And then we made like a spoof advert. Me, my mate Liam and Alex made a spoof advert for um, getting... I was something to do with like a doctor or whatnot. It's like, well, why don't you come to my back alley clinic and I'll do it for you. Very cheap. But poking fun at the fact that, you know, back in the day, folk would just do dodgy stuff in back alleys. Mm-hmm. Being like, yeah, I'll do it for you. Dirt cheap, come to this back alley. And then, you know, all hell breaks loose. Never trust anyone that says I'll in a back alley. Nope. Never go down a back alley in the bloody first place. Yeah, especially when it's very dark at night. But I'm assuming that happened a lot back then. People were just so just yeah yeah very tr- more trustworthy, I would think. I don't think than they, now. I don't even think it's just a trustworthy thing. But the way that a lot of streets were kind of designed back then, because a lot of streets are still kind of designed like this now, especially in the working class areas. There were more back alleys instead of main roads. To get into different streets, you'd have to go down a back alley. So I know that's still a thing now, because there's a lot of houses that were built around about the, the 40s that are still around it like today that have like little back alleys to, to get through, to get to different streets. So I know that's still a thing. So I think back alleys was just way too common. So the whole like abortion offering thing aligns with his MO of offering to help women as to gain their confidence and lure them back to his flat as demonstrated in the Eddie's case when he invited her back to help her bronchitis and then he ended up killing her. Nearly three years passed without a major incident for Christie after the Evans's trial. He soon found alternative employment as a clerk with the British Road Services at their Shepherd's Bush Depot, starting work there on the 12th of June 1950. 
At the same time, new tenants arrived to fill the vacant first and second floor apartments at 10 Millington Place. The tenants were mostly migrants from the West Indies and this horrified John Christie and his wife because they both held racist attitudes towards their neighbours and disliked living with them. Tensions between the new tenants and Christie and the Christies came to a head when Ethel prosecuted one of her neighbours for assault. When she did, there was no assault. Christie negotiated with the poor man's lawyer centre to continue to have exclusive use of the back garden. Uh, mostly to have space between him and his neighbours, but quite pros- possibly to prevent anyone from uncovering the human remains that were buried there. On the morning of the 14th of December 1952, Christie strangled Ethel in bed, his wife. She had last been seen in public two days earlier. Christie invented several stories to explain his wife's disappearance and to help mitigate the, sorry, mitigate the possibility of further inquiries being made. In reply to a letter from relatives in Sheffield, he wrote that Ethel had a retusa, retu, uh, Retumorism and could not write herself. To one neighbour, he explained that she was visiting her relatives in Sheffield. To another, he said that she had gone to Birmingham. Christie had resigned from his job on the 6th of December and had been unemployed since then. To support himself, he sold Ethel's wedding ring and watch on the 17th of December for for £2.10s to furnish... Furniture on the 8th of January 1953, for which he received £11. He kept cutlery, two chairs, a mattress and his kitchen table. From the 23rd of January to the 20th of March, he received his weekly unemployment benefit of £3.12s. On the 26th of January 1953, Christie forged his wife's signature and emptied her bank account. On the 27th of February 1953, Christie sold some of his wife's clothing for £3.5. He also received a cheque for £8 on the 7th of March from the Bradford Clothing and Supply Company. I don't know how they didn't pick up on something must have happened to her because he's selling all of her shit. I don't know how the hell they they didn't pick up on that. Between the 19th of January and the 6th of March 1953, Christie murdered three more women he invited back to 10 Rillington Place. Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson and, he- and Hectorina McLannan. Uh, Kathleen was a sex worker from the Ladgrove area. Ra- uh, Rita was from Belfast and was visiting her sister in, Ladgrove Avenue- in Ladbrook Avenue. Sorry, She was six months pregnant at the time when she met Christie. Christie first met Hectorina, who was living in London with her boyfriend Alex Baker in a cafe. All three met on several occasions after this, and Christie let let Hectorina and Baker stay at Rillington Place while they were looking for accommodation. On another occasion, Christie met Hectorina on her own and persuaded her to come back to his flat, where he murdered her. Later, he convinced Alex, who came to Rillington Place looking for Hectorina, that he had not seen her. Christie kept up the pretense for several days, meeting Alex regularly to see if he had news on Hectorina's whereabouts and to help him search for her. And we've seen that happen quite a fair bit, where they've joined in on the search to try and not look suspicious. Ian Huntley was one, obviously. For the murders of his final three victims, Christie modified the gassing technique he had first used on Eddie. He used a rubber tube connected to the gas pipe in the kitchen, which he kept closed off with a bulldog clip. He seated his victims in the kitchen, released the clip on the tube, and let gas leak into the room. So he gassed them to death. 
The Brabin report pointed out that Christie's explanation of this gassing technique was not satisfactory because he would have been overpowered by the gas as well. It was established that all three victims had been exposed to carbon monoxide. The gas made his victims drowsy, after which Christie strangled them with a length of rope. See, this is where if there was carbon monoxide alarms yep. in them rooms, they would know that there was carbon monoxide in there and try and get the fuck out unless... They there was no way to get out, but let the gas out. Yeah, carbon monoxide alarms would not have been a thing then. No, but it just it's a horrible way to die because it's probably very, very, very slow. Yep. And I don't know what most people's sentence is, but I feel like either, you know, getting dead quickly is a way maybe a lot of people want to go because the more you have to suffer through the pain, it's more painful. And the fact is that they're in that room, the gas slowly seeps in. And the gas doesn't travel fast, it'll travel at whatever speed. And then they slowly start coughing and coughing, and then they pass out. And then, they, they, I don't know how long they would have been in there dying. Maybe an hour or so, maybe? Yeah, probably, yeah. So for the murders of his, th- of his final three victims, Christie modified the gas in... Oh, sorry, yeah, I've already said that one sorry as with eddie christie repeatedly raped his last three victims while they were unconscious and continued to do so as they died which gives you the whole necrophilia oh situation so he wasn't so he he wasn't into that he just did it until the point where they were probably dead and he continued but yeah 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 okay When this aspect of his crimes was publicly revealed, Christie quickly gained a reputation for being a necrophiliac, obviously. One commenter had cautioned against catarizing Christie as such. According to the accounts he gave to the police, he did not engage sexually with any of his victims exclusively after death. You did it as they were dying, though, so I'm counting it. Like, even if the dead were like... Five like a minute afterwards, and you're still and you're still going, or you just finished. Well, that still makes you necrophilia, because necrophilia is having sex with dead corpses, and if the person is dead, yeah, Christy, it counts. John Christy, I don't know how you, I don't know how you can say it's not listening from the grave or from hell, most likely, definitely, uh, it counts, dickhead. You're a necrophiliac in my fucking eyes, so fuck yourself. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of those things where people do stuff and they go, oh, well, it was only this, so it doesn't count. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, th- this guy trying to always my I was a necrophiliac. I mean, bro, you were, you know, you did it. And if you weren't going to be a necrophiliac, you wouldn't do it then. And, there's, and you knew fine well that they were going to be dead in the process of him doing it. So it's not like he he could be like, oh, I didn't know that they were going to die and I was still going to be engaging in sexual activity with them. He damn well knew. So he damn well knew that he was a necrophiliac or was going to do necrophiliac stuff there and then. Oh, yeah. So after Christie had murdered each of his final victims by ligature strangulation, he placed a vest or other cloth-like material between their legs before wrapping their semi-naked bodies in blankets before stowing their bodies in a small alcove behind the back kitchen wall. He later covered the entrance to this alcove with wallpaper. So he put them in the fucking wall, which is a new one. 
Now, he did move out of Tenrillington Place on the 20th of March 1953 after he fraudulently subletted his flat to a couple from whom he took £7.13s or better known as £7.65 or about £227 as of 2021. The landlord visited that same evening and finding the couple there instead of Christie demanded that they leave first thing in the morning. The landlord, the land, sorry, the landlord allowed the tenant of the top floor flat, Beresford Brown, to use Christie's kitchen. On the 24th of March, Brown discovered the kitchen alcove when he attempted to insert brackets into the wall to hold a wireless set. He peeled back the wallpaper and saw the bodies of Kathleen, Rita, and Hectorina. After getting confirmation from another tenant in Rillington Place that were uh, that they that these were dead bodies, Brown informed the police, and a citywide search for John Christie began. After leaving Ten Rillington Place, Christie had gone to Roton House in Kings Cross and booked a room for seven nights under his real name and address. He stayed for only four nights, leaving on the twenty fourth of March when news broke of the discovery at his flat. He wandered around London, slept rough, and spent much of the day in cafes and cinemas. On, cinemas is a diff, different one, but uh, past the time, I guess. On the 28th of March, he pawned his watch in Battersea for tens. On the morning of the 31st of March, he was arrested on the embankment near Putney Bridge after being challenged about his identity by a police officer. This police officer was PC Thomas Ledger. When the police searched Christie, they discovered an old newspaper clipping about the re- about the remand of Timothy Evans among the personal items on him. Christie initially admitted to only the murders of the women in the alcove and of his wife during police questioning. When informed about the skeletons buried in the back garden, he admitted responsibility for their deaths as well. On the 24th of March 1953, he confessed to the murder of Beryl Evans, which Timothy Evans had originally been charged for during a police investigation in 1949, although for the most part he denied killing Geraldine. On one occasion following his trial, Christie indicted that he may have been responsible for her death as well, having said so to a hospital orderly. It is speculated that Christie would not have wanted to readily admit his guilt in Geraldine's death in order to not alienate the jury from his desire to be found not guilty by reason of insanity and for his safety from fellow inmates. On the 5th of June 1953, Christie confessed to the murders of Eddie and Furrest, which helped the police identify their skeletons. Christie was only tried for the murder of his wife Ethel, of his wife Ethel. However, his trial began on the 22nd of June 1953 in the same court in which Evans had been tried three years earlier. Christie pleaded insanity with his defence describing him as mad as a March hare. Don't know what that means. And claimed to have a poor memory of the events. Dr. Dr. Mafston, a doctor at HM Prison Brixton who evaluated Christie, was called as a witness by the prosecution. He testified using medical terminology at the time that Christie had a hysterical personality but was not insane. The jury rejected- I just realized that March Hare thing refers to uh, the hare in Alice in Wonderland. Ah, oh, fair enough. That's why I, I was assuming that's what they mean. Uh, mad as a March Hare oh. is a common British. I've heard people say it before, it's like a common phrase um, because the March Hare was quite mad in the film. Um, I'd say the Mad Hatter was worse. No, because I think Alice is something like the, the mad hair. Interesting. Um, it won't be raving mad. 
at mm. least not so mad as something something like that but she says it's mad or something so that that's what it refers to i've heard i've heard people say that before you're mad as the march here fair enough so you can start you can start using it you can start using it in your own vocab- vocabulary now to describe people uh, uh, okay <laughs> the jury the jury rejected christie's plea after deliberating for 85 minutes and found him guilty he was sentenced to death by mr justice finmore on the 29th of June 1953, Christie stated that he would not be making an appeal against his conviction. On the 2nd of July, Evans' Timothy Evans's mother wrote to Christie asking him to confess all. On the 8th of July 1953, his MP George Rogers interviewed Christie for 45 minutes about the murders. The following day, Christie spoke to the Scott Henderson inquiry about the murders. And four days later, the Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, said that he could not find any grounds medically or psychologically for Christie to be reprived. Among Christie's final visitors while in the condemned cell were an ex-army friend called Dennis Haig. On the 13th of July, the the prison governor and Christie's sister, Phyllis Clark, who had both visited on the night before his execution. George Rogers also wanted to speak to Christie a second time on the night before his execution, but Christie refused to meet him again. According to both Haig and Clark, Christie appeared resigned towards his death. He was hanged on the ni- uh, He was hanged at 9 a.m. on the 15th of July 1953 at HM Prison, Pen- uh, Pensonville. His, ex- his executioner was Albert Pierpoint, who also hanged Timothy Evans. After being pinned. Epinoid for execution, Christie complained that his nose itched, and uh, Albert Pierpoint assured him that that won't bother you for long. Oofed. <laughs> After his execution, Christie's body was buried in an unmarked grave within the uh, within the precincts of the prison, as was standard practice for the executed executed prisoners in the UK. Uh. There's still more to go because I'm going to talk about what people have said in the aftermath and obviously the whole Timothy Evans thing because there is some more to add to that. But his victims were Ruth Forrest, who was 21 years old, Muriel Eddy, who was 31, Beryl Evans, who was 20, Geraldine Evans, who was only 13 months old because she was the daughter of Beryl Evans, Ethel Christie, who was 54, Rita Nelson, who was 25, Kathleen Mooney, who was 26, and Hectorina McLennan, who was 26. Based on the public hair that Christie collected, he has been speculated that he he was responsible for more murders than those carried out at Tenmillington Place, which honestly would not surprise me if he was. He claimed that the four different clumps of hair in his collection came from his wife and the three bodies discovered at the kitchen in the kitchen alcove, but only Ethel Christie matched the hair type on those bodies. The others didn't match. So there's Well, def- he collected hair. Yeah, so he cut hair from he must have like cut parts of the hair and kept it as a trophy, but the on- but the hair that they collected was three different was four different types of hair. And Wait, so he four di- he collected the hair down below no 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 like he their head of hair he just cut a bit off and kept it you know, like how like some ad some parents like oh because you said all the types of hair i was no, like if he collected the hair no, down I mean, there I mean, fucking I mean, hell I mean, yeah. di- I mean different hair types from different people but like you know, oh. you know like how parents when the baby get has their first haircut they might keep that little bit of hair that's just been cut off and put in like a baby book 
Oh. He kind of did that, but for his murders. So, but he said that they were all in connection. He said that those that, those hairs are of his wife's and the other three women that were found in the kitchen alcove. But when they ran testing on it, the hair one of the pieces one of the bits of hair matched his wife, but the others didn't match the women that were found in the kitchen. So there's definitely more murders that he did because they don't match those three. And obviously, he wouldn't say where they did match. Uh, even if the two of the others had come from the bodies of Ferris and Eddie, which have been by then decomposed into skeletons, there was still one remaining clump of hair unaccounted for. It could not have come from Beryl Evans, as no... Oh, sorry, no. Oh, God, no, it was not head. It was not head. It was not head hair. It was pubic hair. It was pubic hair. Oh, why could I have pubic hair? That's weird. There's uh, Yeah. Writing in 1978, Professor Keith Simpton, one of the pathologists involved in the forensic examination of Christie's victims, had this to say about the uh, pubic hair collection, as they've now called it. <laughs> he said, It seems odd that Christie should have said should have said hair came from the bodies in the alcove, if in fact it had come from those now reduced to skeletons. Not very likely that in his last four murders, the only trophy he took was from the one woman with whom he did not have a peri-mortal sexual in- uh, pre-mortal sexual intercourse, and even more odd that one of his trophies had definitely not come from any of the unfortunate women known to have been involved. No attempts were or have been made to trace any further victims of, of John Christie, such as examining records of missing women in London during this during his period of activity. Michael Eddowes suggested that Christie had been in a perfect position as a special police constable during the war to have committed many more murders than have been discovered. The historian John Oates considered it unlikely Christie had any further victims, arguing that he would not have deviated from his standard method of killing in his place of residence. Now, with the whole Timothy Evans thing, obviously he had already been hung by the time people had realised he was actually innocent, which is really shitty. So following his conviction, there was substantial controversy concerning the earlier trial of Timothy Evans, who had been convicted mainly on the evidence of Christie, who lived in the same property in which Evans had allegedly carried out his crimes. Christie confessed to Beryl's murder, and although he neither confessed to nor was charged with Geraldine's murder as well, he was widely considered guilty of both murders. This cast doubt on the fairness of Timothy Evans' trial and raised the possibility that an innocent person had been hung. The controversy prompted the Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, to commission an inquiry led by John Scott Henderson, QC, the recorder of Portsmouth, to determine whether Timothy Evans had been innocent and a miscarriage of justice had occurred. Henderson interviewed Christie before his execution, as well as another 20 witnesses who had been involved in either of the police investigations. He included that Timothy Evans was in fact guilty of both murders and that Christie's confessions to the murder of Beryl were were unreliable and made in the context of furthering his own defence that he was insane. Far from ending the matter, however, questions continue to be raised in Parliament concerning Timothy Evans' innocence, parallel with newspaper campaigns and books being published making similar claims. The Henderson inquiry was criticised for being held over too short over a too short of a time period and for being prejudiced against the possibility that Evans was innocent. 
This controversy, along with the coincidence that the two strangers would have been living in the same property at the same time, if Evans and Christie had both been guilty for the murders. This uncertainty led to a second inquiry chaired by High Court Judge Sir Daniel Braben, which was conducted over the winter of 1965 and 1966. Braben re-examined much of the evidence from both cases and evaluated some of the arguments for Timothy Evans' innocence. His conclusions were that it was more probable than not that that Evans had killed his wife, but not his daughter Geraldine, for whose death Christie was responsible for, and they were dead certain on that. Christie's likely motive was that her presence would have drawn attention to Bethel's disappearance, which Christie would have been adverse to, as it increased the risk that his own murders would be discovered. Braben also noted that the uncertainty involved in the case would have been would have been prevented by a jury by the Home Secretary Roy Jenkins to recommend a posthumous pardon for Evans, which was granted as he'd been tried and executed for the murder of his daughter. Jenkins announced the granting of Evans's pardon to the House of Commons on the 18th of October 1966. Timothy Evans's remains were exhumed and returned to his family, who arranged for him to be reburied in a private grave. Because obviously he was executed, so he was put in an unmarked grave on prison, on prison uh, grounds, just like John Christie was. So they took the remains out, gave them to his family. They buried him how they wanted to bury him. There was already a debate in the UK over the killing. Over the killing, Evans's execution and other controversial cases where it was proven that they weren't guilty before they were hung, contributed to the 1965 suspension and subsequent abolition, uh, abolishment of the capital, pun- or capital punishment in the UK. So for those who don't know, it means that the UK does not have a death sentence. You either face life in prison and that's basically it. You do not get executed. There is no executions in the UK and there hasn't been since 1965. Thank God. Sometimes... People might think with some recent serial killers that we should bring it back for them. Obviously, Because there's some yeah. fucked people, but um, execution just don't exist. I think the one that always got me was France. It was in the 90s France stopped, wasn't it? No, the France... No, 70s. Oh, but what was the what was the guillotine was last used? Oh, no, yeah. I don't know when France's execution stopped, but uh, the guillotine was last used in the 70s. Yeah, I, I swear it was something like the nineties. Was the, like I remember, like they said France stopped using, um, which I thought was like nuts. Um, gu- I don't know. The guillotine was last used in France in the seventies. I know that for a fact. I think it was like nineteen seventy six or something. Yeah, because I thought it was so weird that like that's not that far. No, like my parents were alive during that point in time, and the guillotine was just going out in France. But, but yeah, you can't get executed in the UK for committing any crime anymore. You just don't get executed. That stopped in 1965. Yeah, a lot of European countries can get executed now, right? I don't really know. Uh, I feel like in some part, I know in Asia and other parts of the world, loads of dodgy stuff, but I'd like to think Europe's gone forward where that sort of stuff doesn't happen. Um, I also think we've, I- got, we've got tighter laws, <laughs> so I feel like... It just doesn't, yeah. Well, considering what happened in this case, I mean, someone has wrongfully died and then got executed, which is a horrible way to die. 
By and then in years by, later executed by being hung as well which is brutal yes which were you know how people used to watch that this the thought like people used to watch people get hung back in the day yep. you know you know this is one of these things where i i didn't know about this but i'm sh i'm sure that media or tons of other people have looked back on this case throughout the years as like a standpoint for the police just really fucking up and not doing their job 100% right. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So in January 2003, the Home Office awarded Evan Timothy Evans's half-sister, Mary Westlake, and his sister, Eileen Ashby, ex-gratia uh, payments as compensation for the miscarriage of justice in his trial. The independent assessor for the Home Office, Lord Brennan QC, accepted that the conviction and execution of Timothy Evans for the murder of his child was wrongful and a miscarriage of justice and that there was no evidence to implicate Timothy Evans as the, in the murder of his wife. She was most probably murdered by Christie. Lord Brennan believed that the Brabin report, report's conclusion that Evans probably murdered his wife should be rejected given Christie's confessions and conviction. So, years later, in 2003, bear in mind this man got executed in 1950, so literally 53 years later, his family gets compensation for his wrongful execution. That's, that's way too long of a time. How the fuck did it take that long? Uh, the fuck knows. But that is the case of John Christie, a serial killer that weirdly has a fucking waxwork. Yeah, I will say that I did try and find if Riddling, uh, not um, Rillington, not Riddlington, Rillington Place still exists. It doesn't. It does, it's gone. But, but 1970s, and what's kind of weird is it's another place called Bartle Road now, and as I'm looking at it right now, um, it's a bunch of flats, but like the flats are all conjoined in one long strip. And at one side, like well, depending on what side of the road you come in, um, either side there's just a long, like blocked strip of flats. Then there's just a space where there is just, um, well, if you go through, there's like a there's like a tree, someone's like shed, and there's like patio and grass which goes into the block of flats behind, and then. There's a massive other long block of flats, but like just the space there is where that flat was. Yep. And obviously they demolished it and they decided we won't reenact another flat there. So it seems so weird because you think they would have just continued with lo one long strip of flats, but they've clearly knocked that down. So anyone who goes by will just go, oh, well, that's why there's a space because that was there and that's where those bodies were. Now you know. So it's not like it's hidden. You can go there and you know that gap there is because that's where that flat was. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wonder if, I wonder if the people actually know who live in these flats that right there. I swear they have to tell you. I swear they have to tell you. Because we talked about this many times before. And, like, you know, people have walked there. There, there must be, because there's nothing here that specifically says this was the place of... But you'd at least have I feel like if gotten known. I feel like if you're buying or renting there, they have to disclose that piece of information. Like by the mm, way, so by the way, like if it's like one murder, no. I feel like they don't really have to. But when it's been multiple murders, I feel like they have to literally go. Right. By the way, the reason why it's so cheap to live here, because I've got a feeling it's not going to be expensive rent to like 
to live there. And people will be like, wait, this is London. Why the hell is this not ex insanely expensive? And they go, right, yeah, about that. Like, the, 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 when there's been, a, like, serial killer shit happening in a place that you're about to start renting, I feel like they legally have to tell you this shit. Yeah, because it's not like you'd know it was there. Yeah, because imagine, like, imagine if, like, the person who's, like, living there right now just goes, wait, what? One of the people living there, because they might have thought, oh, she's an art decorative decision to not have a flat there and have, like, a tree come and I went a bit of a patio... But for the people who know, it's like, no, that's not the case. They just didn't fill a block set of flats there because they were building on top of a ground where there was this serial killer who, you know, and people who have got their cars parked outside there because you can park at the front. So those people pull up every day and might not even know they're pulling up to what was once a uh, site for bodies that a serial killer uh, dumped his flat. Yep. Yep, most likely. But yeah, thank you guys for listening to this episode. I thought, I thought, why not take us back to the serial killers? Because it has been a couple months since we've covered one. So, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I did. Yeah, hope you really I mean, because I, I never think enough about serial killers way back then. If anyone knows the ones I cover, I always think of like 70s, 80s, 90s, blah, blah, blah. I never think of cases this far back. And the art is intriguing because it's a totally different set way of life then to what it is now so when we cover a case back then it, it, the aspect and how it goes about is so totally different from stuff that happens now because time has progressed and changed so differently well yeah like time everything just changed it's weird how everything has changed like that now because i swear if they found two bodies in the back garden nowadays they would ex excavate the tent. The, the tents would be up. It would be cornered. Because even, you know, the slightest thing that happens now, police tape stuff off. You can't go down there. You're not seeing what's happening. You know, they're full on. The crime scene's just cornered off. So no one's getting in unless you're on a TV show and you can just lift it up and then walk in there willy nilly. Um, but you know what I mean? Back, back then, the fact that they didn't corner that off after finding two human bodies. To me, seems absolutely stupid and nuts, but hey, I guess, like, well, like I've I said to someone like earlier, you know, the entirety of history is people been doing stuff and then realizing, ah, we shouldn't do that, which is a shame, but it's just one of those cases where um, they essentially just didn't corner it off. And it's a case of, oh, we fucked up. Well, we've learned from our mistakes, but that shouldn't have had to have happened. And we sh that guy shouldn't have been wrongly convicted for us to be in situations now where we don't do that shouldn't take incidents like this to happen yep but yeah that was the case of john christie everyone hope you thoroughly enjoyed this episode next week is your week yes yes but yeah, we will see you guys next week with another episode. We hope you thoroughly enjoyed this, and we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.